Good morning, church. I'm going to steal your uh, stand here. Thanks. Appreciate it. Hope you guys are doing well this morning. I tell you, anytime I get to stand here in front of the church, it reminds me of when I grew up in uh, Hickson, Tennessee, and our song leader was Wayman Vickery, wonderful man, and every time he'd stand in front of us, he would say, Sunday morning at Hickson, what a wonderful place to be. And you know what's funny is that message never changed. It could be the ugliest, nastiest day outside. But the message was always the same. Sunday morning at Hickson, what a wonderful place to be. So for just a moment, I want us to sit here and recognize how blessed we are to sit in this room together and worship a God who not only knows our names, but hears what we're doing. So thank you for being here. And as we dig into the word today, I hope that some, there is some blessing. But for those of you who don't know me, I'm Josh Oakley, and I am officially nobody special. I don't say that to belittle myself. I say it because we serve a God, and he is the only one that is worthy to be called good. And so if you are blessed by anything that said from this stage this morning, it didn't come from me. It came from the Lord, and he deserves all the glory for that. So as we get ready to, to dig into the word a little bit this morning, let's pray together, and we'll get underway. Father, I am humbled by the chance to stand here and speak your word. Lord, I am excited by the story that you've put on my heart. God, I pray that you will join us in this pew, these pews because you've told us where two or more are gathered in your name, you'll be here with us. And Father, I pray that you will be here. Lord, I pray that your spirit will work through me and that you will lead this lesson. And that glory comes to your name as a result of your scripture and a result of the history that you left for us of your people. Father, we pray and thank you so much for the sacrifice of your son and for the fact that throughout the ages you have demonstrated time and time again whenever we walk up against something and we feel like there is no way forward, you are always faithful to provide that way. Father, watch over us today. Be present here. And we pray that this time is a beautiful aroma to you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Lord, if you can hit that next slide. I'm going to show a picture here in just a second. So take a second and look at this picture, if you will. I just want you to think of what you see here. Just take, just take a second and look at it. What do you see in this picture? So at this point, you're probably thinking, Josh, you're crazy. I see a Bible, and I see a watch, and I see a ring. And that's perfectly normal because it's a picture of a Bible, a watch, and a ring. All right? And in itself, there's nothing special about these things. This is the watch in the picture. All right? Not fancy. It's a Casio edifice watch. It's silver with a little navy blue face. It's not expensive, but it keeps good time. But this is the watch I wear when I do special things. And I'll explain to you that in a minute. The other thing is this Bible that sits in front of me right here. It's an NIV Bible. There's nothing in itself that's more special than any other NIV Bible that's been printed. And thank goodness there are lots of them out there. Now the difference is this one has wide margins. So I can take notes. And that was a blessing from my parents when I went to college. Because they understood that my time at Harding was awesome because I got to prepare and learn for my future. But they also understood that the chance to sit and learn about God's will for my life would have a critical impact on my eternity, not just my future. And the ring you see there is a class ring. It's an MBA class ring from the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. 
I could not tell you how many have been made in the history of that school or history of that program. But I can tell you that's one of them, and it probably looks like just like the rest of them. So when you see this picture, you see these three things, and there is nothing special about them to most of you. But let me tell you what I see when I see any of those three things. Lori, if you could bring up that next slide. I see my dad. This watch was my dad's. So the reason I wear this when I'm doing special things, like today, is if I look at it, I not only see the time, I see the face of the man who poured into my life for years. And this Bible is special because when I got this one, he got one just like it. And it's got his name on the front of it, not mine. But I remember coming home from Harding, being so excited from a Life of Christ class with Scott Adair, because he walked us through the story of Jesus and how he was powerful and how he could do great things beyond what we can understand. And I wanted to share that with my dad. And I did. And we made notes in the margins. And the ring is special because it was my dad's MBA ring from the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. It was his. He was the first person to graduate from college in his family. And he went beyond that after he had kids. He said, I'm going to go back to school and get my master's degree so I can do more for my family. And we have this awesome picture of my dad with my, little, my older sister sitting in his lap in his recliner. And he's reading to her. And so it's a beautiful picture on its face. But if you pay closer attention, he's reading a textbook to this little girl. Because he's pouring his effort into his family. So when you see those things, I don't blame you. There's nothing special about those things to you. But to me, I keep them around because I see my dad. So let's see the next picture, Lori. Here's another Bible. Again, this is a King James Version Bible, right? Again, nothing more special in, in general about this Bible than anything else. It's right here in my hand, all right? So when you see this, I don't know what you see, but the first thing that I notice when I look at this picture is it's discolored at the center of the pages. What's special about this Bible is it was my grandfather's. And for years, I spent summers at my grandparents' house before my mom started teaching. And we did lots of fun things. We had lots of fun things. Like my, my grandmother would go get her hair fixed quite often, and we would go to the Little Debbie store and buy fun treats for the family. Or I'd go to the RC airplane field and watch him fly the new RC airplanes that he'd built that week. We did lots of fun things, but you know what sticks out to me more than anything else we did? Every single day that I was there, he would sit in his chair, and she would sit in her glider, and this book would be in his lap, and they would read together. So these things in and of themselves are no different than the other ones that we experience, but they're special to me because when I see them, I don't just see the thing, I see the meaning in my life behind it. All right, you can go to the next one, too. So th this next picture, uh, one more. This next picture is how I remember my father and my grandfather. This is them. So are they perfect men? Absolutely not. But they are giants in who I became because they set a godly example for my life. And I don't want to forget them. But it's not even that I don't want to forget them. It's not even that I don't want to, not, not even that I don't want to be able to remember them. It's that I want to actively be reminded of the example they set for my life. So I keep these simple things around because when I see them, those memories flood back. So these physical reminders are nothing new. 
right? We probably heard our grandparents or our parents talk about tying a string around your finger when you need to remember something important because it's a physical reminder of the thing that you need to do. Or moving something by the front door you need to take with you. It's a physical reminder of the thing that you want to do, but these are not new. If we pay attention as we read through the scriptures time and time and time again, God sets up these physical reminders in our paths or the paths of his people to say, you need to remember what happened here. So we're going to dig into that today. There are lots of different examples. So the first one that jumps to mind for me is Noah, probably because our family just went to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, and it was fantastic. But you see them go through this trauma, and the thing that really struck me at the Ark Encounter was sitting in there and listening to them playing thunder, and it hit me for the first time, I wonder what every other thunderstorm they ever experienced was like. Did every emotion flood back to them to say, God screamed his wrath from the clouds, and we heard every bit of it. That had to be terrifying. But our God is so good, when the trauma was over, he gave them a rainbow to remind them and us that he's never doing that again. So that's one. We took took part in one just a minute ago. As Jesus was about to go to the cross, he says, you need to remember this. So he set up the Lord's Supper. And we take it every week, and it's a chance for us to sit down and say, we not only want to remember that this happened, we want to be actively reminded of the power and importance of this event. So we do it every day. But we're going to spend the bulk of our time today in Joshua. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 3. Now, I'm a little biased to Joshua because it's an awesome name, but this is an amazing book. All right, this is an amazing book. So Joshua chapter 3, first of all, if you're new to reading the Bible, Joshua is the sixth book in your Bible, okay? And if you're new to reading the Bible, welcome to here. We're glad you're here. And if you need help to find what we're looking for, just ask somebody. We want to help. We want to help you in this journey of learning how this book can change your life. So it's the sixth book in your Bible. It's between Deuteronomy and Judges. And so when this story opens, we're going to find Joshua, who's the new leader of the Israelite nation, standing with his people, the people who've been called by God at the edge of the Jordan River, essentially. Now, to understand the importance of this event, we really need to recap what led us to here. So I could read that, but it's going to be multiple books of the Bible. So I'm just going to summarize for us this morning, okay? And once we get to Joshua 3, we will read it. But first and foremost, the nation of Israel are God's chosen people. They're the people that he said, you are special. They're divided into 12 tribes, and they were the recipient of an amazing promise. If you go back in Genesis 15, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it. God promised their forefather Abraham. Something amazing. Genesis 15, starting at verse 13. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. That's not the amazing part of the promise. Just hang on. But I will punish the nation that they will serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, who later became Abraham, and said... To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, to the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, 
Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So he's promised you, I'm giving this land to you. Now for 400 years you're going to be enslaved, but this is going to be your land. And it's better known as the land of Canaan. All right? So this is the promised land, the land of Canaan. And as you can see by God's promise to Abraham, the land isn't undiscovered or uninhabited, right? This land was productive, and it was appealing, and it's a place where people wanted to be, and it's a place where nations lived. And Anthony talks really well a couple weeks ago about how, how wonderful our God is and how good he is at giving good promises and remaining faithful to those promises. But just because God has promised us something, it doesn't mean that the journey to claim that promise is going to be simple or unchallenged. He has given them a land that's already inhabited. So God has told Abraham, this is going to be your land. But there are people who are there, and this is going to be challenging. So what I can promise you is the road is not easy. But if God has promised something to you, it's worth the effort that's required to claim that promise. All right? So let's return to the backstory here. So just as God promised Abraham, the Israelites were enslaved and persecuted by Egypt for more than 400 years, just like he promised. And they remained enslaved until God sent one of their own Moses in a unique situation to lead them out of this captivity, okay? And so he leads them out of their enslavement. God sends 10 plagues that debilitate the land of Egypt because they continue to refuse to release the Israelites. And finally, after the last plague, Pharaoh says, go, get out of here. And so they leave, and they're finally released for their enslavement, or so they think. Pharaoh has a short mind and a quick temper, and he sends his armies back after him. So as they're chasing these Israelites, they're running away. The Israelite nation comes upon the Red Sea, and there's nowhere to go. Again, this is a huge nation who's come upon the Red Sea, and there's an army attacking them from behind, and they're saying, what are we supposed to do? So when it seems like there's no way for them to live, our God steps up to the plate, and he folds back the sea and provides a path for his people. And the beautiful thing is, this is something that I think only our God can orchestrate. Not only does he perform a miracle to let his people pass, he uses the same miracle to ransack the people who are trying to attack him. They come across on dry ground, and the water collapses on this Egyptian army that has been persecuting his people for over 400 years. And as the Israelites stand on the other side of the Red Sea, they are just bathed in awe of the power of God. Wouldn't you be? If you've just witnessed this, if you've just seen God fold the sea open and give you dry ground to walk across, would you not get to the other side and say, how in the world will I ever forget this? Ever. They were so bathed in awe, they sang this song. Are you ready? I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver. He is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. He is my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. 
This sounds like a people who have had a world-changing experience that's going to be burned into their memory forever. But if we learn anything about the Israelite nation throughout this story, it's that they have short memories and trust issues. Okay? So he's just led them across the Red Sea. They've just witnessed this. They spend about six weeks walking from where they are to Mount Sinai. They spend about a year at the foot of Mount Sinai because the presence of God is on the mountain and Moses is the only one who can go up. So he gives them the law and it comes down to the people, but he warns them, you don't go on this mountain. The presence of the Lord is here. Stay down. This is a theme that we're going to see. And once he gives them the law, again, the Israelites have the law from God. It has set up this, this um, form of sacrifice as a way to enter the presence of God. He says, go to the place that I've promised you. 400 years ago, I promised Abraham that you would have this land. I promised him you'd be in captivity. I promised him you'd come out of it. And I promised this land to you. Go to the place that I've promised you. So the Israelites march on just outside the land of Canaan. God has promised them this land. Not only that, but he has demonstrated his incredible might to these people. They've seen it with their own eyes. And they send 12 men, as the Lord instructed, into the city to examine it. The Lord didn't send them in there to see if they could take it. He sent them in there to see what it was going to be like when they had it. And the 12 men came back, and 10 of the 12 said, well, let me back up. All 12 said, the land is unbelievable. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's everything we've ever dreamed of. But 10 of the 12 said, the people are too big. There's too much. We can't do this. But two of them were faithful and said, God has promised us this land. Let's go take it. But the 10 were influential. And the Israelite nation started to grumble and say, we should have died in Egypt. What have you done to us? Our, wife and children, our wives and children are going to be taken. And so God in his wisdom says, all right, you're not ready for this. So he sent them for 40 years into the wilderness. So for 40 years, this Israelite nation, and we are talking about likely 2 to 3 million people here, are wandering in the desert not taking advantage of this promise that they've been given because they were not faithful. Because they didn't believe that what was necessary to claim the promise of God was worth it. What a shame. So essentially what God does is he said, all right, you're not going to go in, but the promise will transfer to your children. So they wander for 40 years, and once all of the adults that were unbelieving at that time had passed away, you have Joshua and Caleb left, and that's it. The children are there ready to go in. We find ourselves at Joshua 3. Okay? So when we interact with this, Joshua has taken over as the leader of the Israelite nation. They're outside of the land of Jordan. And they're, they're walking towards Canaan. But a river has blocked them. So that's where we pick up the story. So Joshua chapter 3. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan. Where they camped before crossing over. So again, we're finding the nation of Israel on the one side of the Jordan, looking over the Jordan into Canaan. Feels a bit familiar, right? They've stood at the side of a body of water before and thought, okay, what am I supposed to do now? Very similar situation. 
Verse 2, after three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you're to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you'll know which way to go, since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark and don't go near it. What I did in my quick little overview of what got us to here, we didn't talk about the tabernacle. Through the course of their wandering, God met with these people and said, I want you to build a place where I can meet with you. So he gave them instruction to build this tent of meeting, and it had different parts. And they built this ark. If you don't know what it is, it's a box. Essentially, it holds very important things. It's very ornate. It has two angels, cherubim, on top, and it's gold. But the ornateness is not what's important about the ark. Okay? The ark is the presence of God. On top of the ark is the mercy seat. And this is where not everybody, only the high priest can go into the presence of the ark. And only on the day of atonement. And only if he brings the blood of the sacrificial lamb to do it. This ark is special because when the Israelites see it, they know the ark is where God is. This is his presence. All right? So remember, they're carrying the ark with them. There's reverence required. As we talked about before, God said, keep your distance from the mountain because my presence is there. It's the same with the ark of the covenant. They can't go in. They can't touch it. Only one person, one day a year. When it's transported, it's most likely covered with skins so that they can't see it. And Joshua tells them, say a distance about 2,000 cubits. That's a big distance. Because in the old law... Distance was required, and we were separated from the presence of God. So as we move forward in this story, remember that the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God to the Israelite people. So verse 5, Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. It's interesting, this consecrate yourselves direction is not something new to these Israelites. They understand what that means, right? In order for them to consecrate themselves, it was a ritual cleaning and a change of clothes. So that's what they do. They clean themselves fully, put on a change of clothes to prepare themselves for what the Lord is going to do. Isn't it beautiful that in the old law, there was distance and there was separation and there was ritual cleaning that provided temporary cleansing. But now that the perfect lamb has been sacrificed for us, God calls us near. And he tells us we can be his children. We can sit at his feet and be part of his family. And we do that with reverence. But he wants us near and he provides perfect cleaning. The blood of the lamb takes it away. They didn't have that. Their lamb came often. Our lamb came once, and his blood never stops cleaning us. What a beautiful thing that is. <clears throat> Joshua tells his people to prepare themselves for what's going to come. Verse 6, Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And, as the Lord, and the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel. Remember, he's a relatively new leader here. So that they may know that I'm with you as I was with Moses. 
Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Now, when I read these verses, I take a little bit of artistic license because I see things the way I see things, right? But when I read this passage of Scripture, it hits me hard because Joshua has been faithful. Joshua is one of the two that went into the land and said, God, what you have promised is good, and your word is good with me. We can take this place. And now he is in the lead, and God seems to get next to him and put his arm around his shoulder and say, today's the day. It's time. You can do this. I'm in charge. So this is what you tell him. Tell the priests. Now, crossing the Jordan at this time of year would have been no small task and not even just a logistical trouble. We've got a picture that's going to come up here in just a second. Now, this is reportedly a section of the Jordan River at flood stage. We're going to find out here in a few minutes in the scripture that when they're going across, it's at flood stage. All right? I can't verify that this is the Jordan River. I have not been there. But what I can tell you is from everything that I've looked at and everything that I've studied, the Jordan River is significantly smaller now than it used to be because of the increase in population. So if you've ever been hiking or if you've ever been backpacking and you come to a water crossing, you understand that if there's any current whatsoever, things can get scary quick. So if you and two, two million people walk up to this and God says we're crossing it, are you going to kind of lean back and go, oh? I'm not sure how this is going to work out, God. I'm pretty sure uh, that ain't going to happen. But the interesting thing to me is God is bookending their journey in the wilderness with water crossings. But there's a slight difference. The first one was the Red Sea, right? God opened up the Red Sea and they walked across. But... When God told him what to tell the priests, he said, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. You want a call to faith? There's a call to faith. Right? I know my people. I know my people. We have gone down this road before. We have essentially been standing in this place 40 years ago. And I said, I promised you this land. Go take it. And you said, I don't know. I don't know if we can handle it. So God is saying, show yourself that you have faith. Go put a foot in the water. Let's keep going. Verse 9. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you. And that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Forty years later, the people didn't leave. They're still there. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. First of all, it is important what he calls Yahweh here. He says in verse 10, this is how you will know that the living God is among you. Why is it important that he calls him the living God? Because they're about to go into a land with other people who have their own gods. And they're the only ones who will stand on that ground with a living God supporting them. People will claim that they have a God who's in control, but every one of them is dead. And our God is living. The, the, our God was living this day, and our God is living today. 
Take faith in that. And if you hear only one thing I say this morning, please don't miss the power of verse 11. Don't miss the power in verse 11. Like we said earlier, the Ark of the Covenant is the presence of God to the Israelites. He says, see the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, will go into the Jordan ahead of you. There are people who are likely standing on the edge who are terrified of what's coming. They know God is powerful, but there are probably a lot of them who are trying to figure out, is this something we can really do? They're uncertain, and they're trying to figure out if they're willing to do it. And just like God does in our lives today, he says, I'm not only with you in the chaos, I will lead you through it. That's the God we have, guys. We all run to a Jordan River. We all get to a point where we don't understand how this works, God. It doesn't make sense. But he says, I know it doesn't make sense. That's okay. I'm the first one out the door. So God has never promised us that the path that he's asking us to walk is an easy one. So whenever you get to the point in your life right now where it feels like that you're standing next to this raging river, staring at the promise on the other side, please know that you have a God who understands And he will stand in the middle of the river and make a way for you. Verse 12. Now then choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel. One from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, as soon as they set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now, the Jordan is at flood stage. Remember, can't promise this is it, but this is what we're thinking of, okay? It's at flood stage. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, cliffhanger, hang on. Can you see how God is expecting these people to take a step of faith? Before he's opened the water up, before they had to walk out. Today he says, this river is crazy. Put a foot in it. And I am convinced that's less for them to convince him that they have faith and more for them to convince themselves that they believe this promise and it's worth it. Remember, we are saved by grace through faith. God is the only one who can provide that saving grace. We have access to it in faith, right? So when God asks us to put a foot in the water, put a foot in the water. Verse 16, when they put their foot in the water, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap at a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. And while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off, so the people crossed the river opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground. While all of Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. 
Can you visualize this? Again, we're talking about millions of people. And we have a handful of people holding the ark with God's presence. And God says, I will stand right here and hold this river until every single one of you is across and dry. This is the God we have. We have a God who will stand in the chaos until we are okay. If we will trust him and take an uncertain step in faith. God has bookended Israel's journey with water crossings. But the funny thing, and this is what I want to spend the last few minutes of our time together on, God knows his people, and he knows they're short-minded. And so he says, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe. Tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place that you will stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men that he had appointed, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of tribes, and they carried them over with them, them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan in the spot where the priest who carried the ark had stood. And there they are to this day. So you remember when I showed you those things at the beginning of the lesson that were important to me because I want to be actively reminded about those people in my life. God is setting this up for them. He's setting them up a reminder. He says, take 12 stones and build a tower for two reasons. One, so that you'll be actively reminded of how God honored your faithfulness and delivered on his promise. And two, so that it will bring others to faith who haven't encountered it yet. There's another generation coming along. And I want them to ask the question and I want you to remember what to answer. And so he sets this up. But I also want to take note of what they were asked to use. So he asked them to go collect stones from the riverbed. God is asking them to make the things that he uncovered in his power the rallying cry for his people. So when God has acted mightily in your life, and you've taken that first uncertain step in faith, what is that thing that God uncovered for you? Was it addiction? Was it pride? Was it doubt? Was it control? Maybe the thing that God uncovered for you that you were able to be free of can be repurposed as a beacon of light to those around you. Remember that thing that used to hide in the depths of your life from which you've been freed is the very same thing that's holding somebody else down at the bottom of their river Jordan and they can't figure out how to get to the shore. So if we can be honest with each other, take a genuine interest in each other's burdens and be vulnerable enough to take these struggles that we've been through and publicly stack them on top of each other as a memorial to the Lord, maybe we can become the hospital for sinners that the church is called to be. Do not let the shame of where you've come cover up the beauty of what God has in store for you and everybody else around us. 
right? Church, God knew that the Israelites had seen amazing things. And he didn't want them to forget about it. Not only that, he wanted them to use that to teach the next generation. The people sitting in this room right now have seen God do amazing things. And he wants us to use those to encourage each other and to help teach the next generation. The reason we come together regularly is really for two reasons. One, to encourage someone who needs encouragement. And two, to be encouraged if you need it. So come here and be willing to share your story because there is power in it. There is power in your story. Let me challenge you today to do one other thing. I feel like this highlighting of your children in this story is important. We have a responsibility to our kids. And I think I can speak for the parents in the room for the most part. I have four beautiful kids of my own. And I think... I think all of the parents in here would say, we will do everything within our power to demonstrate the love of God and the power of God to our children. But you know what they say? It takes a village. The church is our village. Take your stories and build a memorial out of stories. Take an interest in these kids who are downstairs right now. We're parents. We need your help. And what's amazing is we can do our little corner of this and we can pour into our kids. But your story paints a picture of a much bigger God than the one that just is taught in our homes. Because I don't have the experiences you have. And if you can fill that out, what a blessing that is to us. So worship team, you can start to come back up here. We'll, we'll finish out this story. So let's see how it plays out. In verse 10. Now the priests who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded them to be done was done. And as soon as those who crossed the ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. I'm going to skip forward a few verses. Uh, that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests carrying the ark to come up out of the Jordan so Joshua commanded the priests to come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their foot on dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and the, as the flood stage before. Forty years ago they stood in the same place and they said, I can't do this. I can't do it. Forty years later they stepped out in faith. They did something that didn't make sense because God told them to do it. And he, he blessed them mightily. Let's remember who we are, let's remember what God has done for us, and let's remember that story is powerful today and for those who will come after us.